when you interact with a dollar in the US, you know, it's not technically that is a debt obligation of specific banks like JP Morgan or Bank of America, but you don't see, you know, JPM dollar, JPMD or BOAD, right? Or a dollar doesn't feel different when you're in Europe versus the United States, even though technically it is and it has different uh, trust assumptions and security properties that that support that dollar. All of that has been abstracted away from you, and that's basically what we're talking about doing here. What's up, everyone? We are now almost one month out from DAS London, the largest institutional conference in all of crypto. That's happening March 18th through the 20th, obviously in London. This one's going to be a blast. We are almost 10 times oversubscribed for tickets, which is pretty nuts. So again, we've had to lower the discount to Bell 10, and better yet, make sure you bring your friends. We sell a four-pack of tickets. Find people in your company, bring your boss, bring your family, bring your girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it is, just go. You're going to get a discount if you use that team pack. Run, don't walk. Make sure you go get those tickets today and cheers and see you in sunny London town. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Hart Lamber. Uh, And today, we brought on Sam Hart of Skip and Ilya of Near to talk about chain abstraction. Everyone, welcome. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun one, guys. And to to give the audience a little bit of an agenda here and some of the topics that we're going to cover, I'm going to start with a pretty quick definition of just what chain abstraction is. I think a lot of folks listening to this podcast will be familiar at a high level, but where we're going to go is we're going to start to unpack. Uh, It's really great to have both uh, Sam and and Ilya because both the Cosmos and uh, Near ecosystems have tackled chain abstraction. Um, and there's a lot of similarities in their approaches, but some pretty some very interesting differences in their approaches as well that have implications for how this kind of multi-chain endgame is going to ultimately end up playing out. So I'm going to ask the two of them to kind of define how like their own like how the the stack sort of works within their own ecosystems. That's going to lead us to bridging. There's a very interesting bridging uh, different philosophical difference I think in between our two guests today. Uh, and then we're going to end with. Uh, Maybe the the counterpoint to all of this chain abstraction stuff, which is should we just be putting this all on one layer? But to to start, um, Ilya or Sam, whoever's feeling bravest, can you just give us a sort of a quick definition of what is chain abstraction? I mean, I can start. For me, chain abstraction is same as you as a user don't think about which data center the website runs. Um, you should not think about which chain and what kind of infrastructure stack is behind the scenes when you're running Web3 apps. And so the the example I I like to use is you go to Netflix and the current Web3 version of Netflix would have been like select, you know, which data center to go to. And then, you know, then it says like, oh, in this data center, there's too many people. So you need to pay higher fee if you want to watch this movie. And then you like go to another data center. Some movies are not available there. And so like that's the experience we're kind of currently at. It's even worse, right? You like, you kind of need to go to different, you know, streaming services, install different like things, you know, fund them versus, you know, what we uh, come as Netflix, right? You go, you watch the movie, you know, you enjoy your browse. You don't really care which data centers they served from. You don't need to like figure out which, you know, provider you need to pay for on the other side. Like all of that is taken care of. 
And so now, as you mentioned, there's like a whole stack of tools behind to power this uh, and enable this that only now come into fruition. But I think that's that's experience we're all aiming for. Yeah, that, that's just a super helpful overview and definition. And maybe to give the audience even one other analogy, I think the Netflix data center analogy is really good. If you also want to take one from the world of finance, you know, when you interact with a dollar in the US, you know, it's not technically that is a debt obligation of specific banks like JP Morgan or Bank of America, but you don't see, you know, JPM dollar, JPMD or BOAD, right? Or a dollar doesn't feel different when you're in Europe versus the United States, even though technically it is and it has different uh, trust assumptions and security properties that that support that dollar. All of that has been abstracted away from you. And that's basically what we're talking about doing here. And Sam, maybe I could, uh, could turn it over to you. Um, can you kind of walk us through, I think Cosmos has been, you know, they've kind of had this idea that this is where we're going since day one and are very far forward and actually building out the kind of common elements to that stack. So can you just give us an understanding, Sam, of how this works in the Cosmos today? And for folks who aren't maybe as familiar with the underlying mechanics of it, what are some of the sort of common core components of the stack that supports this abstracted chain vision? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the term is interesting because it in on the face of it, it's like kind of a counterpoint to um, like an app chain, you know, you, if you have app chains that are specialized and you kind of imagine them kind of calling out to one another for specific functionality, like you, you kind of arrive at this, uh, this need for chain abstraction. Um, similarly, if you're a user and you want to, you know, move assets or call them from one place or another, you, you kind of end, end up needing this. But, um, the, the term I think is actually helpful because it, it centers the user or, or centers like the, um, the core operation that you're trying to, to achieve. Um, in Cosmos, uh, so we've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I, I would still say it's a work in progress. Like this stuff is very complicated, um, but we, you know, we have been grappling with it for, for several years now. Um, so just to remind everybody, Cosmos kind of, uh, is this design pattern that has three components effectively. There's a, a consensus engine, Comet, um, a, uh, an application framework, which is typically the, the Cosmos SDK, and then a networking protocol, um, authenticated message passing system, um, IBC. And um, there are point-to-point -point connections between different chains. Uh, so there's no central root of trust. It's just chains kind of interacting directly with one another. And, um, and if you're going to talk about chain abstraction in Cosmos, you kind of have to, um, treat it at two different layers. So there is, um, uh, there's the, the kind of infrastructure or like the, the chain layer. Um, so if you want an application on one chain to call out to another chain and, um, you know, uh, bring resources back or um, authenticate something and, and get a token back, um, you will be using uh, you know, purely on-chain mechanisms to do so. So you'll probably use kind of a combination of the IBC uh, protocol and uh, one or more of the, um, uh, the application standards there. So either the, the, the token standard, the ICS-20, or the um, interchain accounts standard. Uh, Near has a similar kind of interchain accounts type system as well. 
Uh, and then uh, on the other side, you have the um, the kind of user layer and the, the message construction layer. So the user has an intent of some kind. They want to use an application. Um, that application you know, may live in a single chain or multiple chains. And you need to construct the, the message correctly so that when it arrives at the application at the, you know, at a single chain, um, it will uh, kind of execute across um, those different environments correctly. Um, so yeah, there, there's some infrastructure at the, the kind of signing level and message construction level that, that are important for, um, you know, at the beginning of the, the, the life cycle of the transaction, and then you hit the chain, there's something that happens uh, maybe it executes something remotely, brings it back, and then you get a result and it comes back to the user. Um, I'll, I'll pause there because I, th I think we're going to get into each of these components more more deeply, but that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I think um, maybe to, to, to sort of summarize, uh, Sam, and, and then we can start to dive a little bit deeper is I think one for, for probably the, the most common framework uh, that folks will have here is sort of the the cosmos way of of how things work and and one of the common components there is there's like an origination sort of point um and then there is this concept of interchain accounts which allows you to have a kind of a a puppet chain so to speak right it's the terminology but there's a host in a controller chain and you're passing a message or sometimes value from chain A to chain B and what that implies is the existence of a trusted or a very robust, credible sort of bridge um, in between those those things. And I think, Sam, one of the, the other important points that we're going to start driving at and where we start to tease out the difference in bridging uh, in between the Cosmos point of view versus maybe the near point of view, which, Ilya, I know I want to get you to talk about unbridging in a second, is there's many different routes that you could often take in this multi-chain world. And a huge part of chain abstraction is actually running, I believe, Sam, right, like kind of an off-chain optimization to uh, get find a kind of find the best route to, depending on what the user's parameters and needs ultimately are. And I think an interesting but really critical nuance there is that you can have depending on the route that you take, there can be a cost and maybe timing difference, but also the security properties of the asset on the side, on the other side can be extremely different. Can you say more about that? 100%. Um I would also add that there's uh the chain state is just is, is kind of moving. So you, you need to understand, um, you know, the, uh, the price of this asset is X and, um, I have this capability Y, uh, and with those combined, I can perform this action. So that that's kind of part of what the, the off-chain component does as well, or off-chain system. Um, yeah. So, uh, because you're executing across different environments, um, like you, you want to have some intelligence about uh, about this state, um, and maybe just to back up a, a second, uh, one of the one of the ways that I kind of explain this like interchain accounts concept is it's very similar to like SSH. Um, you kind of create a remote account, and then you can execute operations um, as a as, as that remote account. So it has this built-in authentication system. Um, so uh, you can establish these between a, a kind of controller uh, environment and, and then ex um, use that to you know, call a resource or execute a function remotely. Um, right, so the, uh, 
how we kind of imagine it right now is um, uh, this is something that Skip does is we kind of like do a bunch of the simulation. We kind of figure out, uh, you know, what is liquidity in different places? What are the kind of capabilities that you have? And then we, um, when a user asks to do something, um, we try to figure out how to do that. So it looks very much like building um, uh, in the, the kind of MEV sense. Um, and then we will uh, kind of provide a candidate transaction for the user to sign, um, which will then go to like the first chain. Um, you know, so maybe it's Osmosis or Neutron or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and it could be that the the transaction stops there. They they just execute on that chain, they get the result, and they're happy. Um, but oftentimes, because we have kind of these app chains, <clears throat> you don't have all the functionality that you need on one chain. So so you end up having to, um, uh, to kind of create an execution trace that um, moves across another chain. So you may uh, swap on Osmosis and then move your token to to Stargaze, which is a, an NFT chain, and purchase a, an NFT, a bad kid on Stargaze, for instance. Safe to assume it's a bad kid, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you can only purchase bad kids in stars, but maybe people don't know what stars are. Uh, so you can use your Osmo or or ETH to to do the swap, make the transfer, and then make the purchase kind of all in one atomic flow. Awesome. All right. I uh, think that's Sam, yeah, heart. Yeah, I got like one just nuanced dumb question um for uh and maybe some of the listeners are Cosmos newbies. How do you pay for all this? Like if the SSH analogy is helpful. So home chain, SSHN and then maybe SSH into another chain, but I have transaction costs along the way. How do I pay for that in the native currency? Yes. Um, so right now, uh, there's a third party called a relayer, IBC relayer, um, which typically picks up the transactions um, after the initial uh, user transaction is landed. So using that analogy again, I, I have, um, let's say I have Adam and I want to buy the bag kid um, so I, I will actually go through Osmosis, make the swap into Stars, and the and a relayer will pick up the transaction and move it to Stars uh, to Stargaze, um, and the relayer will pay the Stars fee on Stargaze, um, and then um, deliver the message, which has like a an authentic authenticated payload that can then um, uh, that can then make the purchase, and. Um, there are a variety of ways that relayers are paid. And um, one of the things that we're working on right now is, uh, well, one of the main ways that they're paid is just by the chains right now. So Star Stargaze kind of has an intrinsic uh, desire to like make sure that people can interact with their, their chain, that like bridging just works. And the fees are not expensive right now. So um, like Stargaze makes their fees on the purchases, not the the inclusion. So um, they they just kind of like want that to be handled. That could change in the future. It will change in the future. But um, yeah, right now, a lot of it's subsidized. Uh, there are there are several ways that relayers can be paid. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually, you could imagine that users um, are, uh, are paying for forwarded transactions that have, you know, Kind of directly simulated like this is what the fee is on for the entire chain right now it's kind of overkill to do that um but that's that's something that that we're working on 
Um, we also kind of imagine, uh, just side note, that there could be other models where, like subscription fees, like across multiple chains or something like that. But, you know, there's kind of different ways that you could imagine um, users might want to pay or, or chains might want to pay that don't look like individual like fee payment for inclusion. All right. So to sum up here, and, and this is when I want to turn it over to Ilya, but I just want to underline, I think, a very critical thing so that just it, it hits home with the audience, Sam, in your description. So, you know, some of the common components of this chain abstraction stack from the Cosmos point of view is the existence of interchain accounts, this IBC sort of bridge, which connects all of these different chains and a network of relayers, which, um, which uh, sort of funnels general messaging, net message passing and value in between these different chains and the existence of a builder-like entity in the form of Skip, which simulates the best uh, sort of path for, for this these value and messages to move. And I, I want to bring us back to one point that we've made um, on a previous podcast. This is going to tee you up very nicely, Ilya, which is that bridging is kind of a myth in that the idea in that the assets never actually leave the chain. So you could imagine, right, if, so, if you're trying to route a transaction from, uh, I don't know, from you know, somewhere like Stride, right? Ultimately into Osmosis via, you're, you're basically the, the Stride token doesn't leave Stride, but you're minting a different obligation. And then once you once you move from chain to chain, you're minting an obligation of the obligation and it gets very complicated. Hence, very different security properties can exist at the end state. And I think, Sam, right, the idea is that in Cosmos, there really is no idea of canonical assets, right? It's just accepted that mostly what we're going to be trafficking is bridged versions of these assets. And so there are very, we've just kind of accepted that um, almost at a societal level for Cosmos. But Ilya, I know you have a very different idea about how bridging should work. So can you maybe describe the chain abstraction, or I know you call it the account aggregation stack as it exists in Near? maybe highlight some of the differences in between uh, Cosmos. And then if you could uh, un start to unpack your concept of unbridging. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, taking also a step back from the start of Near, we wanted to make something that will be simple for people to use and build on. And so kind of the concept of chain abstraction was always like in Near's design, it just was mostly applied to Near. And so Near network itself is actually a collection of chains where every single account or contract on Near is logically a separate chain. And we just kind of abstract all that complexity uh, cross chain communication uh, account bottles and make it look like it's a single blockchain. Uh, and so that's kind of how we can actually scale the near network itself. And so actually every single like token standard uh, DAX are actually a multi-chain like design. So for example, our tokens don't have a proof, you know, transfer from, it's actually always transfer and call uh, with the callbacks because you actually can, I mean, don't have that design pattern that uh, Ethereum has, which solves security issues and also allows to have this multi-chain experience where you actually can deposit other chain tokens on a near smart contract. And it's like, doesn't actually make any difference for near smart contracts where it came from, just like through the design of, of the system. Now, what happened uh, kind of throughout, I would say 22 and uh, 23 is and, and uh, maybe, yeah, so like with Cosmos, obviously been, you know, we've been talking with Zaki on podcasts and kind of offline. And we always uh, argued that like my argument for Cosmos was that it's really hard to bootstrap security for a new chain. 
and it's like very complicated. And so, um, like, why would you do that if you can just launch on something that's like scales and gives you underlying, you know, somewhat similar properties, maybe with more limited uh, kind of characteristics around self-sovereignty and uh, uh, configuration. And what happened is the ZK stack became way more mature. And for me, that's probably the biggest change that happened is that where before you needed to spin up, you know, hundreds of nodes have presumably, you know, some amount of like hundreds of millions of, of dollars of security, economic security. Now you can actually have just single server running transactions and proving it and post that proof. And now you cannot roll back that. Right. And, and that, you know, and that is as secure as hundred billion dollar, you know, of economic security network. And that's a pretty fundamental change. And so kind of, I call that like in this chain abstraction world, that's probably one of the fundamental like security aggregation pieces that's happening. And there's like few different parties, you know, Polygon obviously uh, kind of rolling out the aggregation layer. That kind of is like, I think one of the foundational blocks of this multi-chain chain aggregate, uh, chain abstraction. Now, the other part is indeed like, okay, well, let's say we have, you know, aggregated security. Now all the chains have, you know, same security. It's super easy to launch a new chain. You know, uh, we have near DA, for example, makes it 80,000 times cheaper to run roll up. Uh, cool. But like using all that now, you know, your MetaMask has gazillion chains, you know, you need to bridge, you need to remember where you have gas, like it's super complicated. So, and as you mentioned, Bridging is complicated. It still require. I mean, like, obviously it can make UI simpler. There's ways to um, kind of simplify things, but uh, it's still like every bridge opens up kind of a escape hatch for all the, for, for that chain. Um, and like, there's been, you know, most of the hacks that we <laughs> of recent times have been on bridges, right? Um, because that's kind of the only thing that's like really easy to break into and like you can escape with money right away, right? Like even if you break consensus of the blockchain, like everybody else will validate that it's incorrect and stop, right? That's the worst case what happens. With bridge, the worst case, oh, the money again. And so the approach we are suggesting is the reverse of this. Instead of trying to bridge assets to somewhere, why would we not bring the user everywhere, but in such a way that they don't need to think about it? And so kind of similarly to what Sam described, right? As if you SSH'd everywhere, right? You had an account on all other chains, remote account on all other chains, but it's now controlled by your one specific account, one specific wallet or specific app. And now instead of you specifying the path, right? Like, as you mentioned, okay, well, I have Adam, I need to bridge it to Osmosis, swap it, bridge it to Star by NFT. You can just specify the intent. I want to buy an NFT. Here's some, for example, in our case, near uh, enough to cover it. Somebody should figure out how to do it for me, right? So you have an intent that you specify on one chain with your one account. And then somebody can, on your behalf, pretty much say, hey, I'll do it. You know, I'll take your near. And I'll pay on that chain on your behalf under your account to buy that NFT, right? And so that's kind of the stack we're building. So there is, you know, kind of underlying chain, uh, like security aggregation that's happening through, you know, ZK aggregated layers and like other pieces, DA, et cetera. We have account aggregation that facilitates this, you know, single account 
connected to all other chains kind of remote accounts. Those remote accounts don't do not have a kind of explicit private key. That private key is actually uh, maintained by the validators of the near network, uh, kind of in multi-party computation way. We're using the new cryptography on uh, where multi-party computation, like even as as the members change, the key, the key, the public keys that are uh, if they can sign for doesn't. Uh, there's kind of a new um, threshold cryptography that uh, exists now. And then on top of it, you have a data layer that aggregates now all of the data from all your remote accounts to show you, you know, portfolio across all chains. And then you have this intent layer where you specify the intent and then somebody is as a relayer as well, picks up that intent, executes it on behalf of your account, you know, signing a transaction uh, kind of through those MPC relayers and executing there and pays for transaction fees on that on that chain. And then you have decentralized front ends that actually package all of this up such that it's not you know, complicated and kind of transaction formation, everything happens in that layer. So that's kind of the stack we're building. Um, and you know, each of these pieces kind of play a crucial role to make this experience really uh, smooth and, and kind of from a user, they don't need to think about, did I bridge something? Did I, you know, like you just, you know, you pay, as if it was like a local uh, execution, but uh, somebody else will execute on your behalf, but it will be still in your custody as, as outcome. So Ilya, I kind of like this canonical asset maximalism view. Like I'm sort of biased that way myself. <laughs> um, but I do think it kind of falls apart uh, when you start thinking about some of these roll-ups or falls apart, it gets nuanced, I should say. Where like, if I'm going to have my uh, optimism, arbitrum, let's just take those two. They don't have their own like native asset as their native gas token. They're using Ethereum, right? And so we bridged Ethereum from ETH mainnet to those chains. Um, and so I am kind of curious your views here on how this fits. Because if you take your argument to the logical extreme, it should be like, Optimism doesn't have Ethereum, it just has its own native asset that's native to that chain and Optimism, same thing. Um, but I don't think that seems to be the design paradigm we're going through. So it seems like it's a little bit messy. Like we still may have um, bridged or canonically bridged assets to many of these chains or rollups. Yeah, so maybe just to yeah to kind of bigger picture, right? This model works with not just you know near ecosystem or EVN ecosystem. It works with all ecosystems. It works with Bitcoin. You can have a Bitcoin address where you can deposit your ordinals, your bitcoins, your whatever new crazy stuff that's going to come up. It works with Cosmos. It works with Solana, and it works with all the EVMs. Now, indeed, there is some assets that are, as you said, canonically bridged, kind of under some subset of security assumption. One, one of the assets, actually a simpler one, is USDC. Right? There's USDC minted by USDC central kind of uh, party on a bunch of chains, and it's the same USDC from kind of security parameters of that circle is, you know, guarding it. Um, and so you can, you know, kind of transparently exchange them and, and maintain them on multiple chains. Uh, and so Ethereum with rollups probably, you know, can be considered that. And so it's more of a question now for the user and for probably market to decide which one, which ones they want to hold and use. But the gas fees part is, is abstracted. Like that's just relayers will, you know, they'll have some Ethereum or whatever the token is on the other side, Bitcoin, you know, Sol, Adam for, or uh, Osmo for the related chain and they'll pay it. 
the question is more when you're building a decentralized multi-chain exchange now, and the benefit is near now going to be the place to build them because you'll be able to have addresses on all chains and be able to execute transactions as a smart contract on those chains without any bridges. And so uh, when people depositing Ethereum on Optimism and Arbitrum, how you want to account for that, right? So this will be a decision for a developer who's building such an exchange to now decide how they want to resolve it. And again, this will also probably go toward how market makers and relayers will actually uh, deal with those things. So I, I would say like market will kind of decide, you know, maybe Arbitrum or whatever will be the canonical kind of cheap Ethereum. You know, there'll be a expensive Ethereum on, you know, ETH on Ethereum, like expensive to move and settle. And then, you know, every, everything else will be just swapped under the hood uh, to, into, to, into those. But uh, yeah, I, I would say like, I would not want to prescribe that for sure <laughs> and uh, let the market decide. It's more that this model allows to have like this automatic settlement by the intent relayers based on what the asset like people actually either want or uh, don't even need to think about what's in the middle. I have a quick question for you, Ilya. Do you imagine the, the exchange um, living on near or living on you know, the, the remote blockchain where you're buying the NFT? Well, um, okay, well, depends what, what exchange, right? If we're talking about an exchange smart contract that pretty much like imagine ThorChain right now. ThorChain is an exchange chain that has addresses and all other chains. Mm -hmm. So you can implement ThorChain on near as a smart contract pretty much on testnet right now and have all of these addresses without writing extra nodes, without having any extra uh, kind of additional infrastructure or anything. And you can launch that and, you know, create like the best multi-chain exchange that supports Bitcoin, Cosmos, Solana, and EVMs and any other chain, XRP, whatever, right? All of that is mm -hmm. kind of uh, possible. Now, if you're talking about a user wanting to buy, let's say, BadKid, right? Uh, the idea of kind of how it works is that you specify the intent, right? And then in case of, you know, so, like solver in this case, right? But like we call them uh, intent layer, they, you know, probably just going to go directly to, to, the, uh, to the star chain and just buy the NFT. Like they'll, they'll, they'll fund the, the user's remote account with the amount, not just mm -hmm. for the fee, but also for the buying NFT and buy there. And so uh, the idea here is really that like, you know, probably like this, this intent relayers will just have gas everywhere enough to cover gas and they'll rebalance like every day or every few days uh, to do that instead of, you know, trying to solve the pass, which is like, th th those are really hard problem of like, where all the failure cases of like something didn't work and you need to roll back like in, in this multi-chain kind of uh, asynchronous environment. And so, and the, under different security block time, et cetera. So like going directly and paying there and then taking near and then they settle, you know, even on centralized exchanges potentially is way easier. What's up, everyone? We are now almost one month out from DAS London, the largest institutional conference in all of crypto. That's happening March 18th through the 20th, obviously in London. 
This one's going to be a blast. We are almost 10 times oversubscribed for tickets, which is pretty nuts. So again, we've had to lower the discount to Bell 10. Still hooking you guys up, getting you a 10% discount on Bell 10. And we've onboarded a whole bunch of new speakers. So that's Dan Tapiero of 1RT, Pascal Gauthier of Ledger, Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch himself, Michael Sonnenschein of Grayscale, Brad Garlinghouse of Ripple, Sergey Nazarov of Chainlink, Matt McDermott of Goldman Sachs, their global head of digital assets, Stani Kulachov, Danny Masters, the list goes on. This one is going to be an absolute blast. Make sure you don't miss it. And better yet, make sure you bring your friends. We sell a four pack of tickets. You're going to get a discount on that. So find people in your company, bring your boss, bring your family, bring your girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it is. Just go. You're going to get a discount if you use that team pack. Run, don't walk. Make sure you go get those tickets today. And cheers and see you in sunny London town. I've got a, a question for, for everyone on this call. And Ilya, maybe I could uh, poke at you a little bit about something, but I want to crowdsource everyone's opinions on this. So I think the the really attractive thing that you're laying out in, in this worldview of yours, of yours of unbridging is I think basically everyone in this space, if there's one thing we underestimated the complexity of, it was bridging. <laughs> yeah, even when I was getting into crypto five or six years ago, it was like, yeah, this is going to be solved pretty soon and it has not been so- uh, solved and it's actually an extremely thorny problem. And there's a certain amount of, I mean, there's an enormous amount that that makes sense about wanting to keep assets in the place where they're issued, which is what we keep referring to as being canonical versions of that asset. But it does have a pretty big drawback in the sense that, you know, we're, we're coming fresh off this conversation with Chris Goes, where he's talking about the unbundling of protocols from their assets. And the disadvantage of this particular world, if it were to play out like this, is there's probably a pretty big discrepancy of people that want to hold and use Ethereum versus people that want to be subject to the constraints of Ethereum, the protocol, right? There's probably a large number of people that want to hold Ethereum and use it as a money and buy NFTs with it and trade with it and do whatever they want, but they do not want to pay high gas fees. And so one of the disadvantages that you're, you're sort of recoupling the constraints of the underlying protocol with the asset. And maybe a great example of this is Bitcoin itself, which has basically been unusable from the perspective of like apps and block space. And now I know we've got, um, you know, ZK rollups on Bitcoin and BitVM and drive chains and all that stuff. And maybe that's changing, but, you know, TBD. So what do you think about this idea of that constraint? Yeah, so I think there's two two parts of this. One is, you know, if you ask anyone who holds Bitcoin, like, I mean, the, the comparison between like wrapped Bitcoin and Bitcoin is is pretty dramatic, right? Like mm. the, the amount of people who are actually will, willing to wrap Bitcoin. Um, and so I think generally we have like a pretty un- uneven, um, I would say, consideration when we are talking about, you know, bridges and wrapping, be that centralized or decentralized. Uh, now it's true that like you don't, if you want to have already these assets, you, you want to trade them faster, right? And that's why centralized exchanges being the most successful probably applications in Web3 so far is because they actually offering like, you know, you bring all your assets to one place and then you trade here and you don't even think about the constraints of the networks they issued on. And so the benefit of what we're offering is is very much the same, except you can now build decentralized exchange like this. You can bring all your assets right to remote accounts, and now you can trade on near pretty much the IOUs of that assets without um, pretty much needing to settle all the time back to those chains. So, like in a way, that's kind of form of bridging, but it's not done 
in the same kind of structure that uh, we expect where, you know, bridge holds everybody's assets. Now it's an application, like, you know, a specific exchange hold the assets of users who wanted to deposit. If you don't like it, get out. Right. But um, so it's kind of isolates the hotspots and then gives you the ability to build like a value add services so you can have everything. And so like the, the cool examples with what you can do with near is for example, you can have an account on near that has remote accounts on Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, Solana, you have a bed kid, you have a, you know, mad lad, you have a new lady, you have a, uh, ordinal, and then you can just sell your near account on near. You can, you can turn it into NFT and sell it with all of the assets attached to it to somebody else at, you know, fraction of a cent cost at one second, you know, block time, uh, two second finality. So you can actually trade the whole kind of space of assets on near at like, you know, high speed and very low friction and low fees. Um, but like it's, it's kind of isolated to a specific trade or specific exchange you doing versus like you have this massive bridge that you know bringing all these assets and like uh, holding them and so that's kind of the the transition right it's like user now in in a way in control of the like oh i you know i want to work with this exchange and so uh, i'm i'm depositing here or uh you know i'm i want to hold my asset or whatever the other options there are so Ilya, maybe like as the guy that runs a bridging protocol um Maybe I could map out uh, a couple, uh, uh, maybe a vision for you guys and let you guys poke at it a little bit here too. So first of all, I think bridging is becoming a misnomer um, where all, all you guys and, and Mike, it's interesting, all the kind of the smartest people we have on this, uh, this podcast seem to think that this intent-based vision um, is, is the way Interop is going here too. And bridging now maybe isn't really bridging so much as figuring out how to fulfill or settle these intents in a sense. You still need some message passing. Like I I wouldn't say like, you know, all bridging goes away. Like you need message passing. That's not going, you need some way of like reading state from another chain. Again, like the data layer needs remote state. Yeah. So, so all of that is there. It's just like the, the, the moving value between chains is the most, both like expensive, complicated, insecure and sometimes impossible way to do it, right? Because if you try to move an NFT, for example, you can't because like all of the smart contract logic that lives on that chain or it is the chain, right? In case of like bad kids, you cannot move that to another chain, right? So you need to keep the asset there. Like with tokens, yeah. it's easier, but like even, even then, like you remember rebasable tokens, right? You move them via bridge, you're screwed. So Yeah, but... Uh- I think like modern bridging, the way it's going, isn't actually moving value. It's having this real, this intent fulfiller goes and executes the action on the remote chain and they pay for it, right? Yeah. And then they get paid back somewhere else. So like value is moved by this like third party relayer in a sense, but uh, it's, it's not... Um, not like i've sent value through a bridge protocol to make that happen yeah i'm slightly less convinced that the interchain account model is like that much more secure i mean basically if you imagine a generic authenticated message passing system which all these are built on both token token transfers and interchain accounts the token transfer is basically a it, it is a right to redeem 
a locked token. So it's like, that is the right that you're transferring over the chain. And an interchain account is the right to do literally anything. Um, so which includes token transfers. Um, it, it's really just a matter of like whether you're financializing the object on the other side. Like, do you want to turn it into a token, you know, that specific right to transfer? Um, that said, I like do really appreciate the the near architecture. It's like very elegant and I, it's very cool that you can do the the NFT swaps on on near. Um, but yeah, the security argument I'm I'm like a little bit less less on board with. Well, well I would say like I'm talking about practical security because like I mean obviously like a light client bridge for example, you know, from a security perspective is like, you know, outside of full zk client is the reasonable security. The problem is messing up in the implementation of a bridge is pretty much what everybody has done so far, right? Is like, you know, they forgot to check on the things, they forgot like when you issuing a transaction on the other side, like what's originator is like, there's so much complexity in practical implementation of this bridge bridging. And I, I mean, I, I totally agree. Like we've been building, you know, rainbow bridge uh, on near, we started building it in 2019. So uh, because like we do, you know, think this is extremely important technology, but like making it secure, right. You know, and like maintaining that and like, just, it's like a 75 like item list on, you know, upgrades and stuff. And then upgrades themselves require like, because chains change, right? Ethereum forked and, and uh, added proof of stake. And so now it's like, okay, well, we need to upgrade all of the stack in the bridge to, to maintain like client verification. So like the, the practicality of that is, you know, is way too complicated. That, that And that's kind of what I'm arguing here is more about practicality and like the, the, the like moving out similarly how you guys you know implemented kind of the multi-chain you know searchers etc like moving that out of the the bridge underlying bridging and and communication flow and letting that be done by somebody like kind of off-chain like simplifies a lot of things i've got a question here which is let's bring this back to ethereum for a second and i think one so one driving force here is what users ultimately end up wanting which is probably this this intense base framework but ethereum itself is a protocol and many of these l1s have a business model as it were as well and the business model of ethereum from the way that i understand it is to grow the adoption of eth as a form of money and it feels like the way that they have to do that is to export the eth because obviously if, if we want eth to actually be a money in the in the real sense of being a money we need much much more adoption than we currently have today and the Ethereum network as it's currently set up is just not, I mean, this is an explicit admission, right? By the, the roll-up centric roadmap that the Ethereum main chain is going to evolve to be this sort of bulletin board for posting ZK proofs probably at the end state. But ultimately, a lot of the commerce, as it were, is going to happen on these roll-ups. And so if you just think about that, I feel like Ethereum itself has already baked into its own roadmap the idea that most people are going to be interacting with a bridged or wrapped version of ETH. And Ilya, I feel like it's actually really interesting that you brought up the example of Bitcoin and wrap Bitcoin because you're right, wrap Bitcoin sucks. So maybe from the perspective of these protocols, what they should be doing, their strategic imperative is to make the wrapped version of their token as usable and as secure and safe as it possibly could be. And maybe that's what they should do. And it's, it's almost a form of, you could think about this as a form of regulation uh, from the standpoint of the protocol where they give certain uh, security assurances uh, 
you know, through like the sort of canonical bridge, like an OP or, or Arbitrum, like roll-up type bridge, as opposed to kind of a, a third party bridge. And yeah, I mean, I think, what, what would you say to that sort of, because that's, that's another factor here is these, these protocols have, have business models and there are, there are network effects that happen at the asset layer that might impact the ultimate market structure here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's obviously hard to predict this, right? I mean, the Ethereum business model is as big of a meme as everything else in this uh, space because, ev like, you know, we've been in this space for like, what, five, six, seven years, right? The business model of Ethereum changed already at least three times. So mm. at least in, on my time, I'm sure that for folks, <laughs> core, core, core Ethereum folks, it's been even more. So I, I would say like, trying to predict how that will evolve is hard. I think the important parts to understand is like, yes, I mean, rollups obviously have a very different security model than uh, regular light client bridge. And this is because of this important part, which is they fork with Ethereum, right? So if Ethereum forks, rollups actually fork as well. There's actually two different rollups exist at the same time on two different forks. And then whatever one resolves becomes canonical. Is that what rollups needs to follow? Now, an enshrined rollup. Sorry, an enshrined rollup. Just to, to no, I mean any any rollup follows the fork fork. But what what's what's broken still is that upgradability, right? And this is why I need to enshrine rollups is if you don't want to also like have a multisig on top of it. So point is like. You know, practically speaking, there's a lot of like practical things under the hood, which um, kind of prevent this to be like, you know, an, a nice picture of like, yes, rollups, like inherit full security and it's all easy and done. And and so, again, from my perspective, like, for example, for ETH, specifically ETH as an asset, right? And, and this is obviously a big asset, but like, I would still expect... Um, you know, you can have the, like, again, like this example of, of a decentralized exchange, right? Like, I mean, even think of it from a Thor chain perspective. As a Thor chain, you want to offer, you know, trading with ETH, but you don't want to settle on Ethereum because it's too expensive, right? So you will pick one of the other rollups, the one that you probably believe is most secure, and, you know, if users agree with that, then they want to withdraw there instead of withdrawing Ethereum. That's going to be like kind of second, you know, most canonical. Uh, and it's still, it's still, it's, it's indeed wrapped, but like, again, market decides here, not a, um, like not a specific, you know, security parameters that uh, we can define. I, I typically think about these things kind of in the other, from the other direction, like rollups, chains are our institutions and like uh institutions that have you know a customer base um and they have a multitude of ways to provide the security assurances that like um give their their customers peace of mind um that could be uh, enshrining parts of the protocol that could be providing proofs that could be decentral decentralizing aspects of the, uh, you know, their validator set or uh, providing third-party verification. You know, there, there's like uh, a whole array of different technologies and techniques to, to like give that additional trust assurance. Um, and that like 
you should use kind of what makes the most sense for your users and and for your product. So yeah, I'm kind of like uh, very happy with uh, with a multitude of different um, techniques there being being employed for for different use cases. Well, Sam, playing off that, this idea of rule-ups as institutions, um, and you go back to Mike's point earlier, kind of like U.S. dollars. Well, so what's Ethereum's business model? They want to be the reserve currency of crypto, something like that, let's say. Um, and we go back to Mike's uh, analogy early on, like USD. So the Federal Reserve issues USD. No one banks with the Federal Reserve except for banks, right? Those would be like your institutions or roll-ups. Then you have banks that bank with the Federal Reserve that have, in, they don't have exactly USD. They have an entry on the Fed's balance sheet that says they have some USD. So you have JP Morgan and um, Wells Fargo and whomever else. Um, and then you also have like Silicon Valley Bank uh, and Signature Bank too, right? Um, and they're well, supposed to have, well, exactly, it's the point, right? Um they're institutions that uh, failed. So their USD, what they had, ceased to be considered canonical USD anymore. Uh, and I think it's kind of an interesting example to map out um, uh, this to sort of roll up version of the landscape where transacting on Ethereum, we all kind of think it's going to become more and more expensive if Ethereum works. Um, transacting, it's transacting with the Fed, very difficult to do, very few, few people do it. So most users will want to use their Ethereum on a different institution, to use your word, Sam, um, yep. and they'll pick an institution that should have lower fees and but other guarantees for them. And that seems all well and good to me. That actually seems like a pretty uh, compelling landscape. And then, Ilya, to kind of loop this back to your point, I don't think this is incompatible with elements of like your unbridging thesis here. Two. Yeah, no, it totally works. That's what I'm saying. It's going to be market deciding which one of these rollups is then preferred for people to store their value, right? Uh, I mean, in, in a way, like in this analogy, we are, I mean, there's actually no good like American neobank, but like, you know, Revolut and um, like Mer Mercury. Venmo. Think of Venmo. Think of Venmo in yeah, America. Venmo, like yeah. Venmo Venmo is not a bank, but it holds USD in a form of USD yeah. that you can use to very cheaply and easily transact with really shitty security guarantees. Like, I don't know what the security guarantees of Venmo are. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Yeah. And could I poke at that? Because I actually feel like this is one of the most critical things that you want to get right. Um, and, you know, you hear this, this there's a very common argument that the money and liquidity is going to reside where it's safest. But I think there are, I would give you two really strong data points that that's not actually how it works in practice. And the first data point I would give you is most of the volumes and, you know, sort of transaction settlement that happens in crypto today is uh, USDT on Tron. So that's data point number one. And I'll give you this other example of the euro dollar market versus the canonical dollar market. And it might surprise people hate it when I bring up this macro shit on this podcast, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because it's relevant. <laughs> so there is a market for canonical USD, even if you accept that JPMD is the same as BOAD, there is a much larger, like a full order of magnitude larger market that you can essentially consider it a secondary market for dollars called the euro dollar market, which is USD, which is domiciled by large international offshore money centers. And it's bigger. It's bigger than the market for actual USD dollars in the United States. Nice. Opaque 
unregulated. Um, and actually, there are lots of smart people out there that can trace big kind of macro movements to to this market. And so I would just, you know, I only bring this up to say I'm not sure that it'll play out this way. But I think, you know, if you've been in this camp of, it's you know, the settlement assurances are the only thing that matters, like, you should probably look at these two data points because... Totally. I, I think if you're on board with the idea that like we need to export more Ethereum, um, you really should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, you know, how, how do we provide stronger assurances for Tron? Like how, how do we actually, you know, build up um, security provisions uh, and, and kind of like draw, draw projects in um, and then like slowly upgrade them um, that, uh, I think that's going to be as important as, um, you know, building the perfect, like, enshrined ZK bridge, you know, with three different independently built clients or whatever. But, but I think maybe to bring all of this back to the chain abstraction, because I, I think, I mean, there's a podcast somewhere there about, you know, the the expert of of tokens across chains. But I think the point, you know, bringing back, as a user, you don't need to think about any of that. Like most of the time, you don't think about this. Same as you don't think about what's happened when you pay with your credit card, US credit card in Europe, right? You don't think about the whole flow of, you know, money exchangers and how there's a settlement on, you know, Euro to USD market somewhere because people are actually getting paid in Euro. Like you're just paying with your card and, you know, in the shop and getting your stuff. And so like, that's really what we're going after. Like there will be some things to figure out like on, on the, you know, specific like settlement routes that are most liquid and the most effective. Uh, I mean, because like at the end, it's also will be the question, which, which is the liquid market, which is the most effective market because, you know, somewhere there, the, the re intent relayers like will need to resettle all of this and make sure they like have enough assets, um, which is, I mean, which is the reason why, for example, Tron is used for USDT is because there was a ton of it minted there. And so it's the most liquid, like all the exchanges have a lot of it. And so if you want to move between them, it's really easy. So like at the end, that a lot of that will be decided also by those. Uh, but like as a user, that's not any of the, any of your concern, pretty much. That, that's kind of where we're trying to get to. Sam, so I was just going to say, going back to like, I do agree, and I think we have some agreement that, like, okay, user who wants to buy a bad kid wants to buy it on the Star Network. That makes sense. It's like native assets should be there. Then we have this, like, oh, the roll-ups on their Ethereum. Maybe they want to spend their Ethereum on Arbitrum or Optimism. All good. All well and good. Your thesis, which I, like, fully agree with, is that, of course, the user doesn't want to care what chain they're transacting on. And so the near thesis is that, uh, you kind of have like one home account, your near wallet. Uh, it has signing keys for all these networks. We're using intents to fulfill user intents on all these networks, including on Cosmos. And there's like a really lovely home that you use to transact across this uh, this crypto ecosystem. Um, just to push on that though, like don't you also think MetaMask, like there's other other people that want to have this position too. And I think this is like, where a war will play out, right? Of like, who who's going to be who owns the, the user screen? Who owns the user? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to and, and Sam. Wanna just, like, maybe we get Sam's view on that too, right? So, 
Well, I, I, I think it's good that you brought up this distinction because this, this does actually like draw a line between kind of what Ilya is doing and what, what Skip is doing right now. Um, I think that there could be, you know, hybrid between these things, but like basically uh, a wallet is doing a lot of the abstraction in our model where they are signing across different networks and um, you know, they're, they kind of have the, the key material and, and some degree of, uh, of um, intelligence with, within the wallet to, to know what to do. And then um, Nier is, is trying to like put more of that intelligence into the, in, into the near chain. And um, I think there's benefits to both. Um, you, the, the one benefit that I, I see in, in the near model is you, you get to do a lot of kind of composable automation um, in, in the near chain. Um, in the, uh, when you bring things into the wallet, you can potentially move faster. Um, so one of the things that we've experienced is just like every single chain is moving all the time. There's upgrades, there's different, you know, like various state changes and writing smart contract adapters for all of these things. And like trying to, to create workflows where you're, uh, you're able to query remote state and then like understand that state and then execute on it. And, um, you know, on, on this, this kind of intermediate domain, um, gets, gets very complicated. Um, so being able to just update a client and say, okay, well, uh, we're going to tweak the transaction to, you know, to work this way now, um, that allows you to move a lot faster. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I would, like one of the main distinctions I would, I would draw between, between the two models here. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe as a little bit contract argument, the things we're doing is a protocol. And so MetaMask is very much welcome to use this protocol to power their, for their users, this experience. And, uh, and actually it will work, you know, as soon as launch, because we have snaps and we actually are having MetaMask support rolled out as well, like full MetaMask, like just as a separate chain, uh, rollout as well. The benefit here is we also moved a lot of the logic into the kind of client front end part. And so because we have this decentralized front ends as a kind of framework, uh, this allows to have a lot of that logic there living there. And then any wallet can either like just use it because it's like isolated and, and kind of insecure container, or it can be an app that uses a wallet or you can embed wallet into your app. So, and what we see on Near is that most of the massive user-based apps all embed wallets into them, right? So Near has, you know, three to four uh, most used apps in Web3 uh, with, you know, millions of users. We just actually had hot uh, in last 10 days. In 10 days, hit a million users from launch, uh, which is probably the fastest growing app in Web3. And so they're, they're a wallet inside Telegram, but that, you know, you can just click on a bot and you have a wallet inside Telegram with your Telegram ID, but you can also have, you know, all of this chain abstraction, all of the decentralized front ends rendered there as well. So you have this kind of protocol that can be embedded into any wallet, any app, um, and pretty much turn it into a super app or super wallet on, from, the, from the get-go. And you don't need those developers to maintain you know, ton of complexity on their side. They're just using this as a protocol. And then for users, importantly, sorry, you can switch between all of them 
right? And it works because the state is not controlled by wallet, right? It's, it's uh, owned by your account, by your private keys. And I think that's at least like as a user, you know, and, you know, a proponent of self-sovereignty, that's what I want. I don't want to be binded to a specific provider of wallet software. I don't want to be binded to any specific app. I want to be moving freely with my state, with all of my uh, accounts kind of across Web3. So there, I think there's also, I, I think ultimately the question that we're getting at here is I think one of the most important and unanswered questions in the space, which is who ultimately has the user, where, where does the user lock-in ultimately end up residing? Because I think we're, we'd all probably assume that there's going to be an enormous amount of leverage for whoever attains that position. And I think you guys are doing a great job of describing like two of the camps, which is the sort of wallet camp and the protocol, the sort of general protocol camp. There is another camp, um, which maybe to just editorialize and interject my own opinion, which would be a runaway application uh, ultimately ends up winning that. And I've, so I think I, I think I fall into that camp because I actually had a, there's a great podcast a while ago, Fred Wilson of uh, USV, and he was describing, you know, that he at one point theorized Google Maps or Apple Maps as being this place where you log in and, uh, you know, where you log in and then you would deploy Uber from there instead of from the app itself. And he was like, I don't really know why that, why that didn't happen. And from my perspective, why it didn't happen is because it's just an extra step, right? You already have everything on your phone. You go to the app that you want. Otherwise, you'd have to go to an app and then do a thing as opposed to just going directly to the app. And I do think there's an opportunity for, frankly, like Telegram. Telegram, like how have they not integrated like a, they've got all these Unibot, like all these bots launching. Like, why don't you just launch your own decks? <laughs> Clearly there's product market fit for you guys right there. And so I do feel like there's an there's a there's a roadmap for an app be it a centralized exchange like Coinbase, you already start to see them doing this a little bit, uh, a messaging application like Telegram or something like that to just decide to do a wallet as a service like integration. Because the, the wallet thing is, you know, people have been theorizing about this for so long. Like these wallets are going to be super important and they never like really are. I mean, they obviously MetaMask is, is very important. And they do have a lot of users, but yeah, I sort of probably sit on the, it's going to be a killer application that ultimately ends up winning this and then sort of vertically integrating in a bunch of the stuff that we're talking about. How would you guys respond to that? I've thought a lot about this. Um, one of my conclusions is that we're actually just in the early innings here. So yeah, I agree. One, recently, we're, we're kind of seeing like an unbundling and rebundling of the wallet itself. So um, there's like third party MPC signing services that like plug into different wallets. Um, so that's kind of like, okay, we're going to strip out the, just the like authenticated, like signing architecture. And then like the wallet is like a little bit more of a, um, a user experience layer. Um, eventually you would, if you kind of like take this to its natural conclusion, you would like Apple or, or Google, like with their hardware device, like should have a lot of control if they get into the market, like they can, you know, they, they have HSMs and they can like tie it into Apple IDs and like all this stuff. Um, so I don't really know how, how that's going to play out to be, to be honest. Um, the other thing that I, that seems like a, a big question mark is where privacy lives in this stack. So like you, you kind of have to bring more of the, um, uh, the data and, and state uh, closer to the user, um, like local to the user in order for a user to have privacy. Like that, that is how a user achieves privacy. So 
um, that could change the market structure pretty significantly if there's demand for privacy. Um, to be honest, I spend most of my time just like trying to make shit work, like, cause it doesn't work right now. And like, <laughs> like who owns the user is almost like a luxury. It's like, like just make it work first. <laughs> well, may maybe just to contrast it. So near has number one app in web three, which is cosmos. And it has over a million, million point two daily active users. They're fully chain abstracted. They don't know for the most part, they're using blockchain. They're getting their loyalty points. They're paying for e-commerce. They, uh, it's directly on their phone, on their lock screen. And it's like pretty much embedded into the operating system, uh, with near account. So like, this is already happening and it's like, you know, fully chain abstracted and they'll be able to use web three apps across web three, like across all chains when we have account aggregation launched. Sweatcoin, same thing, 150 million installs over, I think 20 million uh, users who, who have uh, sweat, uh, about 1.5, I think, uh, million monthly actives. Again, this is an app that became a wallet, right? That has wallet functionality that offers, you know, exchanges, they just launched uh, liquid staking. And so like all of this is happening now. And like on near, this has already happened because we have chain abstraction stack, not multi-chain yet, but like for near and it's powering these apps right now. So same with the hot, it's in telegram embedded wallet. Uh, they're going to be launching swaps and everything as well on top of it. You know, again, you don't pay transaction fees. It's all abstracted out. Um, it's have massive, you know, growth. So I would say like, this is happening and apps are popping up and it's either like app into wallet or wallet into app, like on either side, and like app, wallet into super app on the other side. So, uh, I got a couple of points here guys. And then Mike, I think we got to wrap it up too. Right. But, um, first of all, uh, Ton, you should, Telegram does have a built-in wallet. You're just geo-blocked in the U S I should show you this stuff too. And it's got really, some, that's yeah. wild. I didn't even know that. Yeah. yeah, and it has real usage. I, I don't know the stats, but they're they're not insignificant. Um, Sam, uh, Solana phone, like this is another play. Like I, you do yeah. see plays trying to own um, own the user from the kind of wallet level, and like the Solana phone thing, like break the app store, but also have an embedded wallet here too. I, I really don't know a lot about the Solana phone, but it's like part of the strategy. And like Ilya, what you're talking about here is you're literally utilizing Near as infrastructure for applications to have a wallet built in. So like, it's not exactly, it, it is Near wallet, obviously, but it's, user doesn't know that. They just think they've got some infrastructure here, which seems uh, pretty interesting. Well, that, that was my point. That That's what chain abstraction is. Chain abstraction is users don't know. They just use it. And like, they will be using Ethereum apps or, you know, Costs like they'll buy bad kids. They will, you know, transact on Solana. And they will not even know. They will just use use Cosmos or use Sweatcoin. But there, there is a question of entry point here that I think is relevant. Yeah, so it's the same. It'll be Cosmos and well, like yes. I mean, we're providing protocol for coordinating that, right, and abstracting. And that's why, like, it's not just near as a blockchain. It's a whole layer of you know decentralized front ends, a data aggregation layer. Like all of those pieces need to work together to then plug in into those applications on the top. Sure, but the applications that users are using, like again, if they don't know that they're, they're using Near, they don't even know their entry point to go and use like other, it's like the application owns the user, Near doesn't necessarily, yes. right? 
And I, I, I just don't know how that's going to evolve because like, you know, a user is not going to want to have 50 different near wallets on all the different applications and not even know it. That would be like kind of unfortunate, I think. It would be better to have it in one place. So, you, you know, it'd be a great problem for you guys to have where you actually do have users that have 50 different near wallets in all these places, but then you're going to want to figure out the point of aggregation. And then maybe like one of the questions we wanted to ask these, the Sam and Ilya was like the, uh, the counterpoint of like, well, what if you just go monolithic? Like Solana, Solana phone is trying to say, hey, we're just going to have a super fast, high performance blockchain. And that's your entry point here too. I do have some intuition that like there, there kind of has to be common signing infrastructure at in the end game somehow. Like you're going to have something that looks a little bit like OAuth or whatever. And like maybe part of your credentials held on your phone. Part of it's like, uh, you know, held on a, a backup device or, you know, your mom has a, has a, um, a backup the and like that should work across all your apps how we get there i mean the technology exists it's it's more of like a uh you know failure of imagination than than anything else well it's a coordination right everybody wants their own thing 25th 25th protocol um i'm sure that i'm wrong about this but like Talk me down from this sort of standpoint in that it feels like where we're sort of moving potentially is like walled gardens is a really negative sort of connotation of this, but it's kind of like, you know, what is the difference really in between being like, hey, adopt my, like move everything onto one layer on Solana versus like adopt my set of standards in Cosmos with my many different chains versus my kind of decentralized front end on near with like all these different common signing things like at the end of the day right like what we're what we're sort of talking about here is i go back to i actually heard this for this term first from preston evans it's just trust zones right where like there are these different zones of trust and there's a certain amount of heterogeneity within these zones and it's probably everything's probably just going to work better if you're like interzone uh, like interzone commerce is going to work better and then ultimately there's going to be like a distinction or extra layer of friction moving from near to ethereum or cosmos to solana or, or whatever is that ultimately the world that we're moving towards here or what, what's the what's the steel man against what what i just outlined there well I, I think the biggest kind of um different again i mentioned in the beginning i think the biggest change that happened is the zk is like we kind of mm. equalizing the security across the board and i, I mean that you know, two, three years ago, I would be the first one to say like, hey, you know, the, the you need one chain and it's near. Uh, but, there, but the reality is like, um, you know, there is reasons to launch like specifically customized uh, app chain for like specific use case and, you know, potentially remove gas and like do rate limiting in a completely different way. There's a reason to launch like a private, you know, chain that still has still follows the rules and you have zk proof but you don't reveal the actual transaction data so like there's reasons to have like some uh heterogeneity even if you have like let's say the most scalable chain right and you know uh like near uh but the question of like if you can unify security if you can say like actually like there is no difference in trust assumptions between this um 
you can then make things kind of more straightforward for the users to interact with it. Now, there might be still, you know, there will be some latency, like just, you know, sending stuff between. But again, from so near is designed that way. Like near is every single account is a separate chain internally. That's why cross cross kind of contract calls are cross chain messages, which is like optimized latency such that users don't really like have that and, and delivery and everything. And so I think it's all possible to like package it up in such a way that users can interact with all of this without like really uh, dealing with it. And, and, you know, if we draw from Web2, Web2 works asynchronously. It's all, you know, separate service data centers, you know, API services, et cetera. And it all like, you know, packaged up into, you know, Facebooks and uh, whatever steam yards, right? Like this probably uses like five different API services underneath. And so like you don't need to, as a user, don't need to think about it. Like, you don't, you know, have you paid for your uh, whatever video streaming and sound streaming, which is two separate services, right? You just like use it. So I think like that's kind of the, the goal is like, if we assume unified security that removes a lot of this original kind of, oh, okay, this is different trust zones and you want to keep things like as separate as possible. Uh, and at the same time, if you kind of create enough aggregation and abstraction on top, uh, you can actually have an experience that uh, is not as like, I would say cumbersome as right now uh, and potentially is, you know, potentially even more straightforward than using that chain directly. Yeah. Um, well, guys, I, th this was a really phenomenal podcast and it's the mark of a good conversation when we actually had like a whole page of notes and topics that we didn't ultimately end up end up getting to. So, um, but I think we 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 got to cut it off here. But this was a ton of fun for Hart. I hope it's okay if I speak for you here for both Hart and myself. So, um, Sam or Ilya, if folks want to find out more about you guys, either follow you or the projects that you're working on, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, I'm at hxrts on Twitter, um, and I I work for two projects: Skip, which does a lot of this cross chain. Um, kind of building for for wallets, and then I have a project called TimeWave that that does actually much more near like like fully automated um, transaction building uh, and like cross chain flows. So, um, going to be talking more about that relatively soon. Awesome. Yeah, for me it's IL Black Dragon or at Near Protocol for the kind of overall news and updates. And I got follow-up conversations for both you guys because we do have pages of notes to go deeper on. So, so yeah, thank <laughs> you, thank you guys. Bring your bring your gear to Denver. Yeah, looking forward. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, we can do a follow-up, guys. This was a ton of fun. Thank you so much again. All right, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, man. Episode two in the books, and I thought this one was a blast. Uh, I feel like maybe with Chris, we got to cover some of the higher level stuff but we really felt like we dove one level deeper here and got into the nitty-gritty which there's no one better to do that with than sam and Ilya. so this felt like a fun episode yeah well obviously fun i mean the downside is that we have like three hours more content at least to go through um but but you know the the one takeaway here that that does strike me is how uh you know last episode i i think i declared i was an intense maximalist and chris goes mm -hmm. obviously is too um these guys are as well it's it's like the 
it seems that the can, there's sort of a form of consensus that in chain abstraction or in this world where we have all these blockchains, um, you are going to have, you can't be declarative about exactly how you get from one chain to another. You have to do this intent-like thing. And um, in any system, like where that intent originates, um, who controls the user or the system for creating that intent, lots of open questions there. But it, I, I am struck by the fact that like Ilya's like built into his architecture is this idea that an intent gets, gets relayed. So you go get your asset on its native chain in a quote unquote unbridged way. Um, and, and Sam, I think so too. So I thought that was a kind of interesting point of agreement. Yeah, I did as well. I think you asked this, this question, posed this question in our very first kickoff, which is, you know, are we going to have these sort of fast intent, uh, you know, almost like fast bridge intent based infrastructures where which are supported by solvers or is this or is it going to be like the pipes? Do we want to make the pipes themselves faster and less trusted or more trusted? And I don't know. I think there's going to be I mean, you have much more sophisticated thoughts on this than me, but I think there's going to be probably similar to the across design, almost like a almost imagine like a very fast, it's going to feel to the user very fast, right? You can just submit your transaction. This network of solvers is going to end up relaying that transaction. But then there might be like a slow path in the background where the assets move across the sort of canonical most trusted bridges. And, you know, you and I, I think we didn't necessarily set out to have an episode based primarily on bridging and canonical versus bridged representations of assets. But to me, that was the most interesting maybe difference in between Ilya's and Sam's point of view, the Ilya unbridging version of the world, you know, where every asset is canonical versus Sam's the, the maybe the cosmos perspective, which is bridging is inevitable and we should figure out what the best route is, what the best security properties and, and assurances are. And, uh, but there's really is no such thing as a canonical, everything, the assumption is everything's going to be a bridged version of an asset. That to me was the most interesting point of, not contention, but like very different worldviews in this conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Sam would agree once you start, would, would, I think Sam's view would change and we didn't have time to get into this, right? But his, his view would change when you move outside of the Cosmos ecosystem. So within Cosmos, you have this wonderful uh, homogeneity around IBC. Like there is just a, a, a pipe between every Cosmos chain that like works. Right. Um, and so then once you're in that ecosystem, your intent is kind of figuring out the right path between all these pipes. Um, and you're using solvers to figure that out. But you have the pipes by default and they're pretty fast, um, quite fast, and they're pretty secure. Um, although, you know, nuance around that. But you have these pipes that you can use to get between chains. And then in the Cosmos world and Sam's world, it's like, how do I do that the best way? Um, but then like Ilya's looking at it from like, okay, wait, uh, I want to talk across all these different ecosystems and I don't have a, a fast pipe. Uh, I, so I got to do something else here. And this is like more like our worldview at a cross, right? Where you're going to have the intent fulfilled and then there is a pipe somewhere that does something. And actually, Mike, that's the one thing that I, I really wanted to ask Ilya and didn't get into. Um, it's kind of like where user funds are escrowed in a system and how you verify the intent was fulfilled. Um, 
be, we, we sort of glossed over this where he, you have these, this near chain, your home chain, your home controller that can uh, sign transactions anywhere. And then you have intent relayers that are going to go and fulfill them. But um, seemingly like there are user assets on one chain that are going to be spent on another chain. And because you aren't messaging directly, you need to like escrow those user assets on their origin chain, have the intent fulfiller, the solver, fill them with their own money on the destination chain, and then verify how to release the assets back to the to the solver at some point later on. And we didn't get into how that works, but seemingly there is still a use of pipes. Like you still got to somehow verify that intent um, at some level. So so yeah, I, I do agree with what you're pushing on though. I think I think there was a whole episode that we could have done on the blockchain operating system from Near, and they have like my understanding of it is is that the escrow essentially happens at the Near level, their account level. So Near accounts you can actually trade like NFTs, um, and the way that I would think about it is, frankly, Ilya gave this exact analogy on the podcast, but in the same way that an exchange can be a bridge of sorts in between two different, right? In some way, the centralized exchange product market fit is that you can actually trade canonical assets one with the other. And I think that's the that's the idea with Nier as well, except, you know, your custody on Nier is, it's, it looks more crypto native, right? It's on chain, um, but you have like kind of this MPC signer system with Nier validators that ultimately can sign on your behalf. And they have a very neat way that they do this with uh, threshold encryption, but it was kind of beyond the scope of of the show. Um, or we just frankly just like didn't get into it. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's still there's still this question of like, if I have Bitcoin, and like the cool thing about this, this near multi chain account is like, I could have a near wallet that has a Bitcoin key inside of it. And so I could have Bitcoin that I own and right. can spend out of that uh, account. But if I wanted to go and buy like a bad kid on um, on Cosmos, uh, I still need to, and I wanted to buy it with my Bitcoin, right? Uh, okay, cool. I could have solvers compete to do that, but Near can't escrow my Bitcoin, or I don't know exactly know how they would do that. There is still a need to to have that Bitcoin escrowed with a very different kind of finality guarantee there um, before I could go and like buy my bad kid. Um, mm. And so that's something I want to push on. And, and frankly, like, you know, I think Nier is going to be announcing more things um, at, at ETH Denver um, too. Uh, and we are as well, but like on the across side, we're trying to position across more as like a settlement layer for cross chain intents. Um, and I think that this is almost like a necessary a sort of underlooked necessary bit of infrastructure around how do you um, escrow these funds and then release them. But but again, this this is all they're going down that path. This all goes into um, the the core idea here is a user just wants to do things, right? They just want to do things and get things done with assets wherever they may be, and they don't want to think about what chain they're on. Um, and uh, again, that core end goal, everyone seems to really agree with that. Um, but it ain't easy how we get there. Yeah. All right. I have, so I completely agree with that. And I think now Hart, that we need to do an episode on ZK proofs because yeah. frankly, that's already come up quite a bit in the first two discussions. And, you know, ult ultimately the thing that's really difficult, to, I think everyone agrees on ZK proofs is kind of this end state technology. I think where 
we need to have conversations with folks about the different variations that exist and what the actual latency and cost of these, uh, you know, producing these, these ZK proofs are because, you know, ZK, it's a, it's an extremely new moon math technology, but it has been around for a little while. We haven't seen these proofs. You know, we, obviously things are moving much slower than we sort of thought optimistically. And so it'd be great to talk to on the ground experts about what that is. But I had a, I had a question. Um, so well, here's something oh, just, that we... just on that for two seconds, because it does seem like where my mind's going. And I, I agreed with you. I had the same thought during, during the episode. Um, ZK is like the ultimate pipe between all these systems. Like I can just prove something happened. Right. Um, but where I think, again, going back into the latency and cost around the ZK stuff and also speed, these ZK proofs are not going to be, you know, 200 millisecond proofs. It's just not no. really possible. And right. so if we want an outcome where user actions are happening in 200 milliseconds, which is kind of like my goal, um, you're going to need a third party to go and do the thing and then user funds get escrowed. And then after, like the ZK proof can be the way that you like release the user funds. So again, I'm like super interested in this idea of ZK, uh, ZK storage proofs or ZK proofs in general being like your ultimate pipe to connect these blockchains, but with a cost and latency that still implies you have a solver network doing something ahead of it. Um, right. But anyways, that's why we got to do another episode. Why don't I just say something that's a little bit controversial and you can sort of push back on me and talk me yeah. from this perspective. I feel like I sort of, this was my last question at the end of the podcast, but I feel like every ecosystem is basically on the path to solving or has solved interop within their ecosystem. Right. So like this would be atomically at the level of like main chain ETH or Solana. This would be within one roll up stack. So you know, very good interop in between different chains on optimism, for example, but there's just not an enormous like push. It doesn't feel like incentives exist actually to get great interop or like very fast, um, you know, something that would look like, uh, I'm just wondering like how big is the market for essentially interop in between apps that exist on Solana versus Ethereum? And there might just be a fundamental lack of incentives to actually fully pair those two ecosystems. And I, my mental model, which is, I can't decide if this even matters or not, but it is kind of like a couple big trust zones where everything just works much better within these zones. And, you know, if you want to go from Ethereum to Solana, there's a DEX that stands in between those, but it's not like we have to do this like crazy arbitrage that's going to require ZK proofs with extremely low latency in between those things. Like most of the arbitrage will just be intra trust zone, if that makes sense. And I do think that has big implications for the architecture of all of these different systems. But that's that's the way I see it. And and sorry, just to put a bow on this point, you mentioned something really interesting about Cosmos, which is that they have these pipes. The best thing that Cosmos did was build IBC, which is essentially this public good piping system interop. Uh, uh, tool that all these different chains have access to. And they started from day one with the understanding that we needed to be interoperable with these other chains. Whereas I think what you're seeing in Ethereum is that there is no incentive for rollups to be uh, interoperable with one another. Actually, there's a disincentive. Uh, they're, they're probably trying to keep user funds within their, uh, you know, on their 
zone instead of on the other zone. So yeah, well, like the trust zone thing is a useful analogy, right? So, but it, it does break down a little bit in the crypto context, I think. So, okay, we have like AWS and we have like Google Cloud and within AWS and Google Cloud, great. Um, each of them are their own trust zones. They can communicate really quickly within them. Um, if I want to send a message between the between AWS and Google Cloud, I send a message using TCP IP. Great. Makes sense. Mm. But like, what is the message I'm sending? It's just some arbitrary data that an application interprets. It's not money, right? Like I'm not sending money between them. And right. when I want to send money between things, I, I need a different trust system. It's literally what blockchains were built to do. But a blockchain is a complicated consensus machine to allow you to move money within the blockchain. And so this idea of trying to connect these different trust zones, I just, it's not easy. Um, it's not just like no. you send a message, right? Um, because you might want to send a hundred million bucks and there's lots of people out there that are trying to steal your hundred million bucks, like not simple. Um, so IBC has allowed Cosmos to have a trust zone that has pipes between it that like work and work really well. Um, Solana, okay, you don't have pipes because it's just one blockchain. That works great. Ethereum, arguably, to your point, it's like Ethereum you want to think of as one trust zone, but these roll-up ecosystems are kind of building their own trust zones with their interop between them and then kind of competing and having relatively shitty interop between the different roll-up ecosystems. So, you know, the um, uh, Optimism Superchain, uh, clearly they're going to want to make it easy to move funds and value and messages between uh, optimism and base that makes total sense and like orbit chains too, all that. But like you said, they, they, they perversely almost have an incentive to make it hard to move off of a super chain to an orbit chain or vice versa. Like business incentives mean you want that value locked in your ecosystem and your trust zone. Um, and so then that's where there's an opportunity for, um, other interop solutions to to go on top. Um, what do you what you got here? What we got? All right, I'm showing this. This is uh, C Node on Twitter, but he's sharing this uh, screen grab from this is Vitalik's Endgame, and what he's describing okay. is these three paths towards the same destination, which is where where blockchains are heading is centralized block production, decentralized validation, and strong anti censorship protection. So again, I, you know, I don't want to belabor this point and sort of confuse people, but these these distinct systems that look very different today are all kind of heading towards this. And you know, there's the he, he kind of lays out these three paths, which is traditional big blockchains, um, and the, that would be like the Solana approach, where validators get larger, both in terms of hardware requirements and bandwidth costs, but ultimately you can build these sorts of like light client uh, sort of uh, anti-fraud, anti-censorship things in there to make sure that users of the chain, if they're not actually participating in consensus or, or validating blocks, they can at least make sure that everyone is behaving by the rules, right? Which is a pretty good end state. And then on the Ethereum rollups, there's like two different paths that he lays out that rollups can, can, uh, can go, which is one, one rollup scales and dominates, um, in which case you also get centralized block production, but decentralized validation, or 
you get many rollups, um, but then cross-domain MEV sort of also centralizes block production because you have a large builder that's standing in the middle there. And I, I am so... I just want to go ahead, like these predictions will probably be wrong. No one should take me too seriously in this. I'm thinking through this all the time, but I feel like we're heading towards a world of maybe like an olig a roll-up oligopoly um, where you kind of have two different types of roll-ups and it's, it looks like it's just going to be op optimism and arbitrum that sort of run away. So maybe it's not one roll-up, but it's two, two big roll-ups that eventually the brands of optimism and arbitrum are almost synonymous with the level of trust that you would experience, that you would uh, come to expect from Ethereum, and so that obviates the need to even say OP ETH or ARB ETH. It's just ETH, and it's on ETH, and everyone just associates. You know, the level of trust that you get on Optimism and Arbitrum is the same as you get on Ethereum, and then maybe there are these other there are these other sorts of rollups that do something that's very differentiated. But it feels to me like we're on the brink of a hollowing out of like this messy middle of rollups, which all launch, but don't really have a purpose for existing. And you know, one of the things I found myself thinking during this episode was I sort of feel like everyone has slept on what Blast did. Like everyone, okay, I get those popular hate on that particular construction. It's a multi-sig. No one likes the safety or security properties of that chain, but they did offer yield. And this is not my observation. I got to give credit where it's due. It's just John Charbonneau's, and we talked about it on the episode with Modular Money with what Aiden is doing with STTIA. But here's like a pretty logical series of events that you could follow. So if, if we are accepting the idea that most people are going to have non-canonical ETH, bridged ETH, right, up into rollups where you actually do things with that ETH, then if we're bridging it anyway, you might as well take the wrapped version of it that produces some amount of yield as uh, instead of a wrap version which doesn't produce yield and everyone kind of understands that there are these security trade-offs so anyway to try to like make some falsifiable like here's where my mind wound up after this discussion is that ethereum should and is probably going to get much more opinionated about the bridges or like versions of itself that it exports and it probably should try to find out a good way to keep some of the logic like the business logic or or properties of the ETH that it's exporting, it should optimize that for yield. And it's probably going to be many fewer rollups than we ultimately thought. Um, and the way that this gets solved, everything that we're discussing is just like, not some like gigabrain moon math optimization routing shit. It's just going to be within two sort of trust zones, um, like the optimism yeah. arbitrum trust zone. I, I, maybe, maybe it's like two roll-up ecosystems or three roll-up ecosystems. Yeah. I do think there's an ability for there to be like many roll-ups within those ecosystems. So, Oh yeah, um, for sure. Right. But, so just like your diagram, it's almost like I want to label that as like Solana is the bottom one, the, the, and yeah. for the people listening without video. Right. So, so like Solana is your monolithic blockchain that ends up in the same place. Um, the many roll-ups with cross-chain MEV, is actually Cosmos. That's like what's happening today. Um, and then the the kind of like one roll-up dominates. The correction here is like one roll-up or a handful of roll-up ecosystems dominate. And then you've got like, you know, the Arbitrum Super, uh, sorry, Arbitrum Orbit, Optimism Super Chain, maybe Polygon SDK. Um, that makes sense. And then, yeah, Mike, like I do think that Ethereum in the end state needs to be relatively opinionated about how ETH is exported 
from the Ethereum mainnet chain. Because otherwise you have like potentially shitty user experiences. It it reminds me a little bit going back to like your your USD analogy, where like if ETH is the Federal Reserve, uh, you want to have like JP Morgan, which could be like the Optimism super chain, and you want to have like Bank of America, which is you know the Arbitrum Orbit super chain. But like you don't want Silicon Valley Bank, right? Um, as one of the places where you're exporting ETH, that doesn't really do anyone any good. Um, and the thought I had also on 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 the the podcast was like the advantage that the U.S. dollar system has is they do have regulators and rule makers that can kind of like set standards for what it means to be a bank and to use USD. Um, whereas Ethereum doesn't really have that. Someone can come come along and come out with like a new way of exporting ETH off of Ethereum mainnet. Um, and that's kind of cool, permissionless innovation. That's great. Um, but it's also kind of scary because ETH could get exported in ways that are uh, damaging or scary too. Yeah, it's it's for I mean, another analogy that we could use here is almost like luxury brands that maybe use other channels to to sell, but they would have very, very specific examples of like, you can't discount this much, right? Or you can't, when you yeah. display it in your store, you have to display it in this particular way, right? It's because they they might not have direct access because they're using a different uh, sales or distribution channel, but they ultimately want control over the product and, and the relationship with the end user. Because, you know, if you could buy Rolexes and gas stations at 80% off, you're ruining the value of the brand, right? That's what Rolex has built up, this trust and premium brand. And so, yeah, I I really view it like that is the, that I think. And uh, look, let me just also caveat here because the people, there are a lot of people, this is an orthogonal view to how many people think about it in ETH, but I do feel like there is a push-pull in between some people wanting people to hold ETH the asset, whereas I would sort of be in the camp that that battle's already lost as soon as we adopted the roll-up centric roadmap. And really what we should be doing is making the wrap version uh, as good and as solid as the the underlying. I, I feel like that's the, the strategy, but yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and I realize yeah. that that's not the, a similar view to what a lot of other people have, so I could be wrong on this. So big caveat there. <laughs> but. I like it. I like it. Um but I guess let's go back to chain abstraction here too, because going back to the episode, the other thing that I think is like just really was mind expanding for me is thinking about really who ends up owning the user here too. Yeah. And so, you know, um, this, you mapped out, right, uh, kind of three versions, or, or at least what I kind of heard was there's three versions of this. There's like, um, uh, you have the home, a home chain, a protocol that ends up being the home chain um, that is where users go to to then interact with crypto generally. And in a sense, Ilya is trying to position near as that, where your near wallet can have keys to all the other chains. And so it can be your home that you, uh, you utilize to, to, to do everything you want to be. Um, and then there's this other version of it being like actually driven by the wallet which Sam was sort of saying fits a little bit closer to what they're doing at like skip and IBC where the wallet is the uh, it's, it's an off chain 
out of protocol abstraction layer that uh, controls, gives a view into all the user's assets everywhere right. and is maybe the source of intents. Um, and then you brought up the, the third uh, idea where a runaway application that just onboards users like wildfire ends up being the thing that actually becomes the default home for how users interact. Um, and we're, we're really talking about this in the scale of like, there's a billion people onboarded into crypto. What's their actual entry point here? Mm -hmm. And this I find very fascinating. And I think you mapped out your kind of, your bias is more like the, uh, the runaway application is where we, yeah. th this happens. And, and I kind of think I agree, like intuitively, uh, there's going to be some runaway application with some use case we haven't yet imagined that is onboarding hundreds of millions of users and it becomes the default entry point, almost like a WeChat, like super app type thing. It becomes the default entry point for how people touch crypto. Hart, let me ask you a, a thought, hypothetical question, a little thought experiment for you. So, all right, Farcaster, right? Uh, demonstrates this new model about how Web3 social can look. And ultimately we should have these social platforms that are built on top of blockchains. Twitter, you know, Elon Musk, because he's the main character <laughs> at this point, says, you know what? I hear you and I'm on board with this vision. And uh, Twitter is moving to, we're going to eventually integrate a, uh, a, a public blockchain here. Who is more important? Solana, Ethereum, or Twitter in that relationship? Who ultimately has the leverage? I mean, Twitter does. Twitter. And I just... It, you know, Sam said this, it's like, we're so early. I, I would be in the camp that the wallet, a, it just, it's, we've had so long for wallets to that to play out with wallets. And I just don't think it's going to be the case. I think it's an aberration of the fact that we have basically no apps with product market fit yet. But I think as soon as we get one or two apps with like real product market fit, then it's going to be obvious that they have the leverage and they're going to basically try to build in these, um, yeah, they're going to try to be the home base uh, for Web three, and you, you, and I do, but I do think there's a case that the L ones are never fully abstracted away, and and the reason why I say that is because there's a community aspect to this. There's a community aspect to this that's like that is a thing in Web three, which is like it is it is only getting stronger. Actually, it's not getting weaker. It, co it corresponds to these macro trends of like millennials feeling lonely, you know, like wanting internet online communities. Like, come on, how many people do you and I know that's like, I'm an Ethereum or a Bitcoin or a Solana, right? There's like, you want that. That's actually a feature, not a bug. And I only see it getting stronger, not weaker. And if it were me, if I was unilaterally in control of an L1, the which is impossible, obviously, but like the playbook that I would be running is what I described to you in terms of exporting my currency. I would do that. But then I would try to keep a community and set of values and uh, and uh, touch points with my users. And I would do that through basically like events and media, stuff like that. Like I would do these like big, you know, like DevCon, uh, you know, ETH global type events. Um, and I would like keep people feeling like there's an Ethereum community or Solana community or Cosmos community because I think it's actually pretty powerful. And so anyway, there's my, there's my end rant. I'm, I will just come out and say, I've got an opinion and say, I think apps are going to run away with it, 
but I don't think it'll ever be like, I don't know anything about Ethereum. I, I just don't think that ever fully gets abstracted away. Well, you can do both and it's probably a good thing. Like in the same way we talked about it in our kickoff episode, like I'm, I'm really thankful that we have Cosmos and Ethereum and Solana and they're all learning from each other, right? Um, so let's add a fourth player, let's call it Twitter, right? Like uh, if Elon's listening, like everybody said this and he absolutely should um, build blockchain into Twitter, Right. But if Twitter became uh, the fourth ecosystem that uh, onboarded 200 million people into crypto like overnight and gave them a wallet and gave them things to interact with and then became a platform to do all this other crypto like stuff. Um, well, that doesn't like kill the other ecosystems. They still work. Yeah. It's not like you can only have one entry point into crypto. You could have two or three or four. And I don't think it's crazy to think that many users would have many, many people would have at least two um, entry points into this crypto ecosystem. And then the advantage here is if you did have a, an app, like a runaway app, and by the way, it doesn't have to be Twitter. It could be something totally new. It could be like the next TikTok that comes on the scene that people hasn't been created yet. But if you did have that runaway app, I think it would actually teach the other ecosystems where value lies in crypto. Like what are the things they should be doing to get 200 million users or whatever. Um, and you could probably have a very different flavor for it too. Um, mm. And that would be, uh, I mean, I, I kind of just get the sense that that's how you get a billion people uh, into Web3. Um, you have somebody do something in a specific context, but it's specific. And then we have these other L1s, they don't go away. They maybe become more OG, they become more of a community, they have a different flavor, but they actually learn from the runaway app about what they should be doing to attract tons of users. Yeah. I I, I also think like, my, in general, I feel like we people almost like weirdly aren't bullish enough on crypto because it's like, oh, it's all going to be on this one thing. Like if we're really bullish on adoption here, you know, the assumption should be this is going to be like wildly um, there's going to be tons of different ecosystems and communities and all of that. So I've, that's always been sort of my assumption from the beginning. It's just like, what would it look like if a billion people came onto this ecosystem? Like there'd be, it would look really different than it does today. And I, I think there will be totally different. I don't, I don't even know, like maybe there'll be like kind of apps and then ecosystems that sort of roughly have their own camps of apps. I have no idea. Um, it, it's an interesting thing to think about. And I do think also to maybe point something out because people have always been like, why do, why do people like Sam said this really interesting thing? He's like, look, it's almost a luxury to even speculate about this because I just want all this shit to work. You know, it hasn't even worked yet. So I think that's also why sometimes people are like, why are all these talks so technical? Like the builders are still focused on trying to make it work. <laughs> They're not like wondering where the value is going to be extracted yet. Right. We're in like, hey, let's just make sure this thing ships. But sorry, I looked like you're going to say something. No, no, no. I mean, like, first of all, it's, it's funny Sam saying that because I think, again, you go to Cosmos and like the UX issues in Cosmos were like so unbelievably bad. Like the, the yeah. skip team, I was actually at this offsite with them and they did this exercise with like a bunch of crypto builders and they sent us each, um, they sent teams of like four crypto founders. They're like five teams of four crypto founders that so they sent a uh, hundred USD to and they're like, okay, you team, you go try to buy an NFT on on Stars, and you go try to like stake on Stride or whatever. Um, and literally, like we couldn't figure out how to do it. Like it was so bad, right? And this is what Skip is trying to solve. Um, I'm so but, glad you had this experience. I had to phone a friend to buy my bad kit. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I was like, 
I know. <laughs> and they're doing God's work. Skip is doing God's but work. So they're doing God's work, right? So like to Sam to his credit, like hopefully Sam is gonna listen to this and be like, Yeah, I feel I feel seen, right? Um but to his credit, <laughs> right, it's like figuring out how to have all these um app rollups talk to each other is really hard. Um but I guess the, the point I'm gonna make is like since the episode was on chain abstraction and we keep thinking about abstracting all chains away from the user. Um, maybe we're actually jumping ahead a step. Maybe it's actually supposed to be chain abstraction within each of these ecosystems, within each of these trust zones. So like within Ethereum, things just work. Um, I can spend my ETH however I want and it all makes sense. Within Cosmos, it just works. Uh, Solana, you got yourself already figured out. The monolithic thing works. So great, right? Um, and And maybe we shouldn't be worried too much about connecting these ecosystems super seamlessly yet. Um, and again, to draw the analogy back to finance, it's like, okay, US dollar systems are connected, uh, Euro systems are connected, but like, if you want to move between USD and Euro from a normal user perspective, it's a total pain in the ass. It's like not an easy thing to do. And maybe that's kind of what we should be thinking about for now is abstracting away within these specific trust zones and and not going um not connecting them all from day one yeah i hard i really like that yeah i think we should even dive further into that this season i think that's a really good way of thinking about it because i i would actually say like it looks like it works for solana now but they've got a lot of work to do on like their fee market is totally broken they've got to update upgrade their schedule like there's there's work every single one of these ecosystems needs a little bit of work and uh you know, one thing that I would just, I know we've already gone on for a little while here, but like the last thing that we didn't really get to, but that I, so let me read this. Uh, Ilya sent this sent this over for us to read before this episode. And he, he talks about, we'll link it in the show notes, why chain abstraction is the next frontier for Web3. He talks a little bit more in depth about the parts of the stack that maybe we didn't get to cover during this episode. You know, but he, what he describes is this idea of ZK proofs and you know, so instead of having to trust this like network of validators, you can literally have one server do this very complicated thing that requires a lot of compute, generate a proof, and then submit it um, to this chain. And you know, he said zk proofs in in the near ecosystem they um, they allow for a cross chain settlement within within near. And there's this there's this line that sort of stood out to me, which is the new paradigm introduces the idea of cross settlement. Uh, as more chains become fully ZK provable, if some proof is published on other chains, there's no way to revert this chain without also needing to revert other chains. Transactions from one chain can also settle on multiple others via ZK proofs. This provides mesh security as all proofs continuously get aggregated, allowing the safe movement of assets between such chains. Now, that sounds nice, right? But again, this is where shared security comes into the mix. The downside of that is each of those chains are now sacrificing a critical part of their sovereignty, which is kind of their fork choice rule, you know? So like the more integrated you become with another system, the less chant, the less, uh, the less in control you are of your own destiny, so to speak. And that's why I was kind of asking this question about like, what really is it? You know, at one point in my crypto journey, I had a very clear definition of like, this is an app chain. This is the, this is, these are the pros and cons. But now it's like, well, app chains need shared security. And then once shared security or like some sort of mesh comes into the mix, you can't really just fork whenever you want. And actually, you have to coordinate your updates with all these other groups of chains. And then you, I kind of just get to like, well, 
then does this really need to be its own chain or can it just be can it just be a bunch of smart contracts on the same layer and that is the i think that that's why that's why i keep saying this thing like what really is the difference in between these things because you know the more i play this out the less i see the do, do you see what i'm saying yeah yeah i do but like i think there's nuance here too so just the ZK proof or whatever, just as an example, if I have one chain and I get a ZK proof from another chain, just saying, here's the state of this other chain, like mm-hmm. my, my existing chain still sovereign. Like I don't cool. Great. I got a proof that you, this is true, That that's useful. Um, where I think it gets complicated is if I had conditional logic. So if I had something on my chain that said, okay, here's the state and I'm telling you uh, it's dependent on the state of this other chain. And then later on, I get the ZK proof of the state of the other chain. It actually says something different. And then I have to like roll back my chain. Well, now I'm locked. Now I'm connected. But this is where it's like nuanced. Being able to prove the state of the other chain on your chain, that's great. That doesn't hurt me. I just get like, this is just truth, right? But if my chain is dependent on that truth, um, and if it like, if I said something in the past and be and I, and I was wrong and now I have to like redo my own state, roll it back. Now that's a mess. Right. But I think, you know, again, this is where I'm focused on this like settlement of cross chain intent set type stuff. If you, if you kind of like extract that part away where chains um, might be es- like they're escrowing funds. I'll just keep it simple. You escrow funds and they don't get released until you get the proof. Well, now you do have your independence of your chain, but you're connecting them in a secure way. Um, yeah. And so the architecture and the design stuff here uh, really does matter. And I do think the ZK tool is like a superpower to let you know the state of other chains in a provable way, um, in a way that doesn't require a lot of work. This was like the Chris Goes episode too, that was also like a light bulb moment for me where I'm like, okay, wait. Um, uh, my, my virtual machine can now know some really complicated consensus mechanism over there, but it doesn't take me, it takes me like linear time proving proof because of this ZK proof to prove it. And so shit just gets, it's, it is a superpower. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I think the nuances of this, of how chains have their own sovereignty, um, uh, and yet can know the state of other chains to do useful things. That's exactly what we're trying to figure out. I agree. I think all roads heart are leading towards ZK proof. So we're going to have to come up with <laughs> a specific, a specific episode for y'all here. So thanks for, thanks for listening. This was a long one. I know guys. So if you made it to the end, we appreciate you and we'll see you uh, same time next week. Yeah. Thanks everyone.